And last week we began a series called Salt and Light. And I think it was profound and significant for us to understand that the first calling that we have, the call that God has over our life is to be light. And the reason why that's so important, I believe that's important for us to comprehend and come into understanding is because many of us who put our faith and our trust in the Lord, um, what happens to us, we be, uh, we're in pursuit to discover and to know what's God's purpose for my life. And sometimes we say that uh, by saying, what is my calling? And so... If anyone has ever prayed to God, God, you have to show me what's my purpose. God, I need to know my calling. Sometimes we get stuck in this spiral of searching and searching and we see people and it's motivating. Some people are admirable. Some people we you know, say, wow, I, I just wanna be like them. Maybe that's what God wants to do in my life. And while it's good to honor and to admire men and women of God, Sometimes we, we get lost in pursuit of what God is doing through them. And I know that journey to feel lost, not knowing what God wants to do precisely or specifically in my life. And I think while God does have very specific calling for many of us and very specific purpose, the first thing to come into understanding is that we are called to be the light. And there's so much in being that light that I actually believe that understanding that is what then leads us to the purpose and the calling that God has for us. But we'll miss that if we don't understand foundationally that we're called to be light. And so let's turn to the scriptures, open up to the gospel of Matthew chapter 5. This is our theme verse for this mini-series. Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to read verses 13 to 16. If you don't have a Bible or, or, or Bible application, we have provided it on the screens above. All of the translation I'm going to be using is New International Version. That just helps you if you're using the device and you want to follow along as, as we read. So profound. This is Jesus' first recorded that we have, the, we have the entire transcript of a sermon. And in verse 13, it reads this of Matthew 5. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for nothing, for anything, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Verse 14. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Amen? Amen. Amen. At this time, let's just... Greet the person next to us, uh, maybe someone in front of you, behind you, and just let them know by a warm welcome that you are excited that they're in God's house, and then after that, you could be seated. Amen?
Amen. Uh, last week we began speaking about the theme of light. In the text that we read here, Jesus uh, calls his listeners up into a mountain and he's speaking to a people that are oppressed in many ways and we spoke about this last week. Uh, he's inviting a Jewish community who is suppressed by Roman rule, a lot of injustices over them, and uh, they're being pressed, uh, being crushed uh, in many ways, abused by, by, by the Roman power. But that's not the only oppression and crushing that they're feeling. They're also being crushed by the very religious system that is supposed to be uh, revealing God to them as the Jewish people who they have their faith uh, commencing with the call to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. God speaks to Abraham and pronounces blessing for him. That he's going to bless him. He's going to make his name great. And in the end, the purpose of God blessing Abram is for him to become a people that then would become a blessing to the rest of the world and the nations around. And so we have to always understand this about God, uh, that whatever purpose or even calling that God has for us, God desires to, to bless us. It's not just to bless us within the tiny framework of our individual lives. But when God blesses us, or when God wants to use us, or purpose and calling, it's ultimately for us to be a blessing to those around us. And it's not blessing someone because of my goodness. It is blessing someone because of God's goodness, his blessing in me. We can say the light of God shining in us, that is what is supposed to be the blessing to the world. So this is not human-to-human blessing. This is divine divinity. This is God blessing creation. And so God chooses Abraham in order to develop a people who we know them in the Old Testament as the Hebrews who become the nation of Israel. And the purpose of God is for his light, his identity, for them to be in the image of God, and by being the image of God, the nations and the people around are supposed to see the light, see the wisdom, and come to know this beautiful and glorious God. That's, that's what's supposed to happen. But the story of the Bible is this. They are unable to be image bearers of God. They are unable to be the light and the blessing that the nations are supposed to see in them. Insomuch that they lose their own identity, they lose their own image, and they become just as dim and just as dark as the people around them. And so when we're introduced to the beautiful Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels are now the answer to this dark world. Uh, 
we see the human uh, inability to bear the image of God. And so God himself has to come down and bear his own image. And so while he invited humanity into this glorious plan, uh, we f- human nature tends to not be able to uphold this image and the beautiful standard of God, his wisdom. And so when Jesus comes into the world, uh, the gospel of Matthew says this, that a light has dawned in the land of where the Jewish people are residing, where there is darkness. And so Jesus coming to the world is an announcement of many things. We understand this as the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? And we've defined this. The gospel is this, that a king has come. And that king comes through the person in the life of Jesus who then is pointing back to his father. And his father is the God that was revealed to Abraham. It is Yahweh. It is the God of this Hebrew people, this nation of Israel. Uh, Jesus is coming as the image bearer and the light of God, and he has come to this Jewish people, this people that are under oppression by the Romans, but also by their very own religious system. In many ways, you and I can relate today, where we are experiencing in some degree or another, the pressures and uh, the, 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 the crushing of the world that we live in. For the whole world is not just open and the whole world has not submitted to God. And in many ways, us as Christians feel this outside uh, crushing or this darkness that is trying to creep its way and does creep its way into our very own personal lives. But at the same time too, I think we would also be able to relate where sometimes it's the religious institution itself. Sometimes it is the very church that is supposed to be pointing us and leading us to God that also adds to the crushing in our lives. And so we have the crushing of the world, and at times we have the crushing of our own religious system that is oppressing us. But in the end, God always desires to be the light. And the Gospels tell us this in the Gospel of John, uh, in the first chapter, tells us this, that the light came into the world, and the, and the darkness could not overcome it. This is the power of God coming into the world, that God's light will always be victorious. It does not matter how much darkness there is. It does not matter uh, who is the oppressor in history. It does not matter who's the oppressor in our time. It doesn't matter if our oppression is coming from our government, or if you go to another country and there's oppression and that. It does not matter the kingdoms of this earth. The announcement of the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ has come and he's reigning, not later, not in another time, but his kingdom has already begun to reign and his kingdom is already reigning. So that means that there is light right now. So when we come to God, when you and I come to God and we put our faith, by faith we're saved, by the gift of God, it's his grace extended to us. We'll read this, none of us can boast. None of us can boast. The light that we do have, none of us can boast about that. That all comes by the grace of God, and it's a free gift. But when we come to that grace, we come into the light. And so while we celebrate and we sing songs about Jesus being the light, and we were able to do that today, that God is the light, this is so profound that God then looks at us and says, and now you're the light of the world. Oh, wait a minute, I didn't sign up for all of that. I'm okay with embracing your greatness, God. 
I'm okay with embracing that you are the God of the Hebrews that was spoken to by Abraham. I'm okay to the fact that uh, by the word of God, the, the creations were framed and formed. I'm okay with all of that, but wait a minute. I am the light too. And this is the other beauty about the gospel message, that God, who is the light, in his own wisdom, decided to place himself within us. And so God is not above and far away from the earth. God is not far from you. He's not far from me. He's desired to make his dwelling, his residence in us. And so if God is in us, that means that there is capacity for you and I to be the light. Why I think this is important. Jesus does two things in Matthew chapter 5. He calls them salt and then he calls them life. And both are unique and very significant. And so last week I told you, I said, I actually want to begin with the light and then from there we'll move on to the salt. We spoke about the light last week, but I think there's a little bit more for us to discover before we get to the salt. So that's what we're doing today. We're going to continue in this light. And so last week was important because the theme was this, we are called to be the light. We're called to be the light. For those that are in Christ, you are called to be the light. So there's a calling over you. We're not just called to go to church. <laughs> You're not just called to pay your dues and give tithes and then go home. We're not called to go to service and wait for the next service. We're not called just to. We're actually called to be the light. And so if I'm called to be the light, then this is my challenge. When I leave this place where it might be easy to worship the light, the light of God, the challenge is when I leave this place, am I acting as I'm live? am I living as the light that I am called to? And this is the tension that you and I have. Where in here I will worship God with my lips and I will lift up my hands and shout praise. But then the challenge is that when I leave here and I leave the community that's supposed to be filled with light, I step into a dark world and that's where you feel that tension and the dark world doesn't care that you worship the light of the universe and he doesn't, the, the, the dark world doesn't care that there's a calling over you to be the light. So what does the world do? It's going to try us. It's going to try you. How does the world try you? Oh, it's, it's, if the image of God and the lights of God has to be manifested by the children of God, then the darkness of this world is going to be manifested by the children of darkness. And so the light of God is in us humans, but so is the darkness. And so we're going to feel the tension when light collides with darkness. And for some of us, this is a tension that you feel in your workplaces, and you're, you know your boss has a devil. You know it. You feel, the, the, your the lunchroom lady, she's got a devil. You know it. How, how she pours, slams your mashed potatoes in your plate, knowing she possessed. You just, she just... But we all know what it is to feel the darkness coming from other people. And so what tends to happen to you and I is we say, God, you need to shine a light on this one. You need to shine a light on her. Some of us even say, God, you need to shine a light on my husband. God, you need to shine a light on my wife. Shine a light on, and God say, you are the light of the world. 
Like, like yes, God is the light, but, his, but your, our calling is that he's called this light, and that is the challenge. So that means this. If I'm in Christ and God has placed his light in me, though it's easier for me to respond in anger, not just to the dark world, but to... It's amazing how we're the light and our brother is the light, but then when we respond, we respond to each other in darkness. That has to cause us to question, right? It has to cause us to question, like, wait a minute, how are we both claiming to have the light, but then my mouth is not controlled, my emotions are not controlled to you. This shows how desperately we actually do need the light. Now, make no, make no mistake about it, Jesus certainly is the source of Let's read John 8, verse 12 that we read last week. We called the gospel of John the GoPro gospel, where Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, follow this narrative, and they're very similar. We call these the synoptic gospels. But the gospel of John is very unique, and it's not so much us reading an account about Jesus from the outside. It's almost like we're walking with Jesus, and there's a, there's a camera on his chest. And so it's a gospel that's very close where you're not watching from the outside, but it's almost like you're in the gospel with John. And John chapter 8 verse 12 says this, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so what does it mean to be in the lights of God? It is to walk out of darkness and walk into that light of life. And so this is not just a message of confess Jesus and then watch him go. It's a a message of confess Jesus and then follow him. And we see this in the life of Jesus and his ministry. When men came and saw the light, then he said, follow me. And then the journey became for them to forsake their natural life, all that they were doing in pursuit of Jesus. And so they were able to be filled with more light. They actually were able to be transformed and challenged by them following Christ, not just confessing him. And so what's important for us is that it begins with our confession of Christ, but then it's a journey to follow him. It's not just a journey of praise him, because many of us confess him and then we show up to praise him, but we're not actually following him. This is our struggle. And so if God, look, if God, if Jesus calls us to be light, then the thing that we have to do is start living as the light. So this is the question I have to ask myself. Are you living? Am I living? Are we living as the light? It just replayed yesterday. I don't know. I'm not trying to judge, but just, I think that's a good reference. Just yesterday. And think of our day, our interactions, our time alone. Were we living as the light? And if there's any uh, place in your thought and when you, you recall yesterday uh, and you feel like, wow, that was dark, then it's only an invitation to draw nearer to God. And I think we all can find some kind of way where we can draw near to God. And so here's the other thing about l- l- the lights of God. The lights of God is not just meant to be uh, poetry. It's light. <laughs> you know, that's, 
It's not just meant to be abstract and let you define what the art is saying, right? You ever seen abstract art? It's just hanging on the wall and it's like everyone's looking at it. No one knows what it actually is. But it was, it was painted as abstract art. The painter wants you to fill in that picture. He wants you to interpret the picture and let it be whatever it means to you. And so the beautiful thing about abstract art is that I come out seeing that painting and say, wow, this looks like this to me, and now I feel this about it, and now this is what this means to me. And then you walk up beside me and say, wow, this looks beautiful. I don't see that, but I see this. And so now both of us are walking away saying the painting was beautiful, but with two different interpretations. That's what abstract art would do. However, when God says, and he calls himself the light, it's not abstract. He doesn't leave it up to me to define who he is. He doesn't leave to walk up beside me and say, well, no, I actually think God's like this. And so the scriptures are for God to reveal himself as light and for Jesus to define and give meaning and give definition to what that light is. This is what's true of natural light. Natural light is not abstract. It's actually concrete. It's quantifiable. You can measure it. It has a temperature and it has a speed. And so light itself gives definition to its own meaning. We don't get to make that up. And so this is the truth about when coming to God. I don't get to make up who God is. And I don't get to make up who his son is. And then when his son gets here, he says, I'm only bearing image of my father. I'm only saying what he's saying and I'm only doing what he desires for me to do. So now when I have that example, when I come to God, I can't make up who I think God is. I can't say God is this if that's not who God is. So it has to be. So here's the thing about light. Light has to be truth. It has to be true. In the Gospel of John chapter 14, as we've progressed, Jesus said that he's the light of life. He said that he's the light of the world in John chapter 8. When you get to John chapter 14, 15, 16, very beautiful uh, where, where John puts you so close to Jesus. Very intimate moment with Jesus and his disciples. And the chapters go on where Jesus has his disciples and he's trying to reveal the beauty of his image, the beauty of his light to them. And they're asking him questions and he's revealing himself to them. In John chapter 14, Jesus said this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father, except through me. So now we start getting definitions of that light. For one, he's the way there, but he's also the truth. Jesus is the truth. He's, he, he's the truth and the life. And he's the means by which we access God the Father. Why is that important in the gospel? Is because this. The Jewish people, his disciples were all Jewish too, their religious system was not allowing them to access the God that they claimed to be worshiping. And so while they had the right God, they had the wrong means. Jesus now is trying to correct the wrong means. And he says, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the light. Thank you. Amen. 
So Jesus is the means. There's no way to get to Yahweh except through him. Look at that truth. We live in a world where it's like that's not... When the world believes in God, the portion of the world that does believe in God, they say, well, all gods get you to the same place. And that would be their view. Us in our Christian faith, you as a Christian, we cannot have that all roads get us to the same God. So, now I can't say that to, to the world. That they're, but we need to make sure that we're saying that to one another as Christians, right? Like, you and I who believe need to know that there's only one way to the Father, and Jesus is that bridge there. And so, as a Christian, that's the truth that you and I need to believe. We cannot make up, oh, but that seems a little too narrow-minded. I, you and I do not get to make up the truth of the means to God if we confess Christ. Because if we confess Christ, Christ said, I am the means. And there's no other way, there's no other bridge. So, so this is the truth that is coming with the light. And then after that... In the same chapter, we just go down to verses 15 to 17. Then Jesus says this to his disciples, these men. He says, if you love me, keep my commands. He says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and will be with you forever. So now he introduces this. That if you actually love Jesus, right, if you're following him as a light and we, we're making a claim that we love him, then that means we have to keep the commands, obey what he instructed us to do. This becomes a tension because I love God, but it's challenging to obey what he instructed. And while it is challenging, and I'm not going to diminish the struggle and the fight that we have, the truth is this is the expectation that God has for us as his sons and daughters, why? Because there's a calling over you and I to be light. And so if we want God, look how this is going to make sense. It makes sense for me. If I'm going to say, God, what's my calling? Right? What's, am I a pastor, a prophet, a preacher? If I'm going to say, God, what's my calling? If I'm going to say, God, what's my purpose? I want you to use me in my calling and my purpose. God cannot use us in that if we are dark. He can only do that if we are light. And so the journey that you and I have is to be transformed into the light. Because you know how dangerous it is? You know how dangerous it is for when you're walking and you're calling, but there's still darkness buried on the inside of you? Oh, I know how dangerous it is. It's like prophesy over here and then cut somebody out over there. Dangerous. Image bearer of God over here, darkness Son of the devil over here. And then we wonder why it's like we feel like the kingdom of God takes, you know, three steps forward, four steps back at times because of this reality. And so Jesus says, if you love me, then you have to keep my commands. And this is why I said it's so important that we know what Jesus said. It's not abstract kind of love and obedience. We also don't make up what he wants us to obey. He, he, he's spoken, and we have all the Gospels to study. Like, you can, we can live a lifetime in the Gospels alone. 
asking God to transform us. Most of us just come and we worship to the songs that we sing, and it's beautiful to worship. But today I want to suggest to you that worship is only to open up your heart so that the real truth can come in. Okay? Like the real truth of God can come in. Don't mistake the worship song of God as the instruction of obedience. Like, we can come alongside beautiful worship, but to obey the words of Jesus will be defined by the words of Jesus. And then he says this in verse 21 of that same chapter, so John 14, we're just skipping down a little bit of verses. Oh, you know what? Hold on. Let me finish 17. Sorry. He says, he's going to get, so, let me, sorry, I have to speak that it makes sense, right? If you love me, obey me. But he does know of how difficult that is, right? Jesus is not like, oh, he doesn't understand the tension that that creates, so this is why he then says this, and I, if you love me, obey me, but in other words, what he's saying, do not worry, I have prayed for the Father for someone to come alongside you. So there's, you're not going to try to act in obedience alone. It's, it's, it's not within your human power. It's not within our human mor- moral, morality to obey God. So he says, I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to give you another advocate. I'm sorry, that's verse 16. To help you and be with you forever. So this is, the, this is the confidence that I want us to go out with when we're saying it's too hard to obey God. This is too difficult. I, I, you know, I don't have willpower. I don't have mental strength for this. Uh, this is why we got to remember the word of God for you to know that the Holy Spirit is with you forever. And so you're not resisting by yourself you're not trying to be a good person by yourself why you think this is why jesus is here because he's looked at the world from the beginning and even when he's put a calling on abraham he realized they couldn't do it by themselves and so this is why the holy spirit is going to come alongside you and in you to give you the capacity to obey but if you don't believe that then you're never going to walk in obedience So the transforming of our minds that we need is that I have the capacity to obey God. I have the strength to obey God even in my weakness. Why? Because God's strength is being made perfect in our weakness is what Paul was saying. And what does he say? How does he he identify the advocate that's going to be with us forever? He says the spirit of truth. So Jesus is the light. And the one who's coming alongside us is also a spirit of truth. So when we try to walk, so when we try to walk and then we start wrestling and we say, I think this is okay. The spirit of truth is going to say, I'm sorry, that's not. So now the spirit of God that's on the inside of you, the Holy Spirit, the comforter, it's not just the the comforter, you know, oh, you're having a bad day. Yeah, Yeah, he's there for that too. But he's also the spirit of truth. So the spirit of truth is going to reveal to us that which is right, that which is wrong, as we pursue God. And his job will also bring the conviction to us. Not condemnation. Condemnation pushes us away from God. Conviction is supposed to turn us towards him. It's to bring us to understand the truth that we're not right before God in this area. And so he wants to bring us to be right before 
God. And he says this, the world cannot accept him. Well, why can't the world accept the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit? Because, it has not re- because it's rejected the gospel. So the only way for the spirit of truth to come into us is for you to accept the gospel. And the gospel message is, yes, a king has come, and Jesus Christ died for our sin, and then he resurrected, triumphing over death and the grave. So, 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 so that's the, the, the fuller message of the gospel. But the world, if it doesn't accept that message, then it doesn't have access to the Spirit of God. Because the Holy Spirit comes on the inside of us when we receive the message of the gospel. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. And that's beautiful because he's talking to his disciples here. And at the end of his life, he's going to tell them to wait in Jerusalem for that Holy Spirit to come. And you see those words of Jesus come true. That promise made to those men comes true on the day of Pentecost to them and the 120 that are there. Verse 21 and then, uh, of John 14, he says, Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Reaffirming the beauty of their obedience. When you get to John chapter 15, there's just more intimacy. It begins to talk about Jesus as divine and we're the branches. And it's going to encourage, Jesus is going to encourage his disciples to remain in him so that they can bear fruit. Beautiful chapter. Then after that, he's going to tell them, I no longer call you servants, but I call you my friends. The intimacy that Jesus is having with them. And then he goes on to, then he transitions in John chapter 15 and he tells them this. The world hated me, and now that you're my friends, the world's going to hate you. The world has persecuted me, and if you love me and you follow me and you obey me, then the world is going to hate and persecute you. And so what is Jesus doing? They've accepted the light of his call, and now he's inviting them to walk with him and live according to the calling over their life. This becomes our great challenge too. How do I live out the calling that God has over me? And so those men would continue to pursue Jesus, and they would have times of doubt, and they would abandon Jesus during his most difficult hour, In the Gospel of John, from there we get the scene where Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays. He invites his three closest disciples to pray with him, and they fall asleep on him. Three times, and Jesus tells them, the flesh is weak, but the spirit is willing. And he's still still pulling them into the light and pulling them to, to obey and pulling them to follow, pulling them. He's trying to pull them out of darkness as they follow him. Jesus would then be handed over, betrayed by Judas. Uh, The Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, would literally offer him up to the Romans. And then Pontius Pilate would crucify him. And then he would be, he would surrender his life on the cross. He would breathe his last breath, declaring that it is finished. His body would be taken, placed in a tomb. And then on the first day of the week, He would rise again. And he would appear to these disciples 
who deserted him in his time of hour, who doubted. And then they would see the reality of, at that point, then it was like, wow, this is, this is the Messiah. This is the king. When, you read, when we read in our Bibles in the New Testament, and it says Christ, Christ is the Greek word Christos, which comes from the Jewish word Messiah, which the Messiah was the, the, was the awaited king that that, 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 that the Hebrews, the Jewish people were waiting for. So when, they, when the disciples pronounce him as the Christ, they're acknowledging that the king has come. They saw him be crucified, and now he gets up. Oh, boy, you are king. There's no doubt about it now. This, this is the, this, he was dead, and now he's alive, and no one went and pulled him out. He got himself out. And so the resurrected Jesus would transform these men to the point that they would give up their lives for the message and the testimony. Because they walked with him as a human. They saw him get tired as a human. They saw him eat fish as a human. And they watched, they saw lashes on his back as a human. They saw the thorns on him as a human. And they saw him breathe his last breath as a human, but when he got up out of the grave, they knew there was something more than human about him. And then they start to recall all the words that he said. And then they realized too that his miracles were not just some. There were you have to also know this too. There were other people performing false signs and wonders. There were sorcerers and witch workers in the time, and there were people practicing the magics, and, and there were people doing some, some supernatural stuff too. And so this is why when Jesus was doing stuff, the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders just said, oh, you're just, you know, uh, prince of the devils over here. They just equated his power to magic like some other magic that was out there. And so there were other supernatural things going on. But when he got up out of the grave, it just put him on a whole other platform ever seen by the world. And then these men will live their lives in that persecution. They will live out the reality that the world hated Jesus and now they are hated. And that he was persecuted and they were persecuted too. And so when we get and we finish the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the GoPro is over. The book of Acts is our next read. The book of Acts is actually written by Luke himself. And the story picks up of the men, the disciples now waiting for Jesus, the promise of that spirit of truth, that comforter, to rest upon them and be in them. And on the day of Pentecost, it fills them. And on that day, Peter gets up and preaches. The, me- the king has come, repentance of sin, and he's inviting the rest of the world, the onlookers, they are present, to come into the light. And on that day, it says 3,000 men and women were baptized, and they step into the light. And now that they come into the light, now their lives, they're not, now they come in, and now they, they're trying to live as the light, because that's the purpose. The purpose is to live as the light. And as they're going out, there becomes someone from the Jewish uh, a council, a Pharisee of all Pharisees, and the Bible tells us that this guy's name is Saul, and he hates, 
He hates this message of Jesus. He hates that these Jewish people are, 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 are putting their faith and putting their hope in, in, in this, this claim of this resurrected man. He, he, he detested the fact that this message was corrupting the Jewish faith and all of its teachings. And so he sets out to murder and to kill, and he's out arresting men, women. It didn't matter. He was out to stop the message of Jesus. But this, this is why we have to remember. This is why the Gospel of John begins by telling us that the light came into the world and the world could not comprehend it, that the world could not apprehend it. It's because even though when it was persecuted, even though when men rose up against it, even when men like saw that everyone was afraid of, came, it could not suppress the light. But he consented to the death of those that were preaching the Gospel. In the book of Acts, we read that he consented to the death of Stephen, a man filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, someone living, called to be the light, and actually living as the light. And the Bible says that he consented to his death, and they pulled him out, and then they started to stone him. And the Bible says while Stephen was being crucified, that he saw the Son of Man, he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. What a beautiful picture because in all the other texts of the Bible, it tells us this, that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He seats at the right hand of the Father. But it's so amazing to know that while Stephen was dying for the gospel, it was as if Jesus was giving him a standing ovation for being persecuted, for preaching the message, for living out the light, though he was being hated. And after Stephen dies, Saul continues to go out on his hunt, and he's looking for Christians. Can you imagine there was a man... After you like this, could you imagine us being persecuted just because we were here worshiping Jesus? This was the life that these early men and women and believers faced. And so you had the, 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 the Jewish people converting, seeing the fulfillment of their prophesied Messiah of the Old Testament. They're, seeing, they're believing the reality that it's fulfilled in Christ Jesus as their king. But then the rest of the Greek and Roman world all around, the Gentiles there, they're hearing the message too. And Peter and the disciples are trying, but they're under persecution. At times they do good, at times they do bad, but they're trying to be courageous. But the light is too strong. The light is even too strong for the darkness. For the Bible tells us this in Acts chapter 9, that that man Saul was on his way on the road to Damascus. And it literally tells us this, that he's walking with his men and light flashed. Light, light, light dawned on him so hard and knocked him to his knees. Even all the darkness in Saul, the darkness could not overcome the light of God being revealed to him. And it's, it's kind of ironic because the light knocks him to the floor and then he goes blind for a period of time. I thought the light was supposed to open your eyes. Sometimes the light sears. Sears the false vision and outlook that you've, that, that you've had. And, and, and I don't know, this could be stretching, but it could be that God was searing his old eyes. And then later on, he has instruction by God and he has to go to a certain place. And then when he gets there, when God opens his eyes, he's able to see in a new light. And this is what God desires to do for all of us, that when we come to Christ, it's not to be religious, but it's to see what we didn't see before. It's to know what we didn't know before. 
ultimately is to live a way we didn't live before. And you and I have to know this. And Paul, Saul's life would be transformed. And then he would be just like the rest of the, the disciples and the apostles. And then he himself would become an ambassador of this light. And so in the book of Acts, you can see how the disciples, they, uh, the 12, uh, they tend, what nat- organically happens, they begin to really reach the, the Jewish people and bring them into the faith. And throughout the life of Paul's ministry, what naturally starts to happen is that God uses him greatly to preach to the Gentiles. And you see the work God uh, using men and women to share the light. This is what we're, we're called to be. But we can only be it if we live it out. And so they live it out in, in Acts chapter 17. Paul would visit Greece. And he would, be, he, he would begin to share the gospel in, in Greece. He goes into Macedonia, which is in Greece. And then he goes into a smaller city in Macedonia, Thessalonica. You might be familiar with this. This is where we get the letter to the Thessalonians. And so when he gets to Thessalonica, it's a, it's a, it has a one synagogue. There's one synagogue there with, with Jewish believers in God, but it's surrounded by Greek, uh, Greek and, 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 and Roman culture and, and the worship of their gods. And there's temples there as, as well. And he shares the message of the kingdom. And, 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 and they believe. They believe, but then there's Jewish religious leaders who, who, who don't like that Jewish people are believing. And, 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 and it gets to the point where him, uh, he's not by himself. He's with uh, Silas. Uh, Paul is with Silas and even Timothy. It gets to the point where they, get, they have to flee because of the persecution that's there. Then we read that he goes to Berea, and there they open their, their doors to him, and they receive the message uh, with great joy. But it was disheartening for, for, for Paul to, to have to leave Thessalonica. And so what ends up happening, Paul actually sends Timothy back to Thessalonica because he's heard of their persecution. But this is what he's heard. He's heard that they're doing good. And so the letter that we have uh, of the th- that Paul writes to the Thessalonians is, is beautiful because you actually see, finally, you actually see a, a, a group of early believers that are actually doing good. <laughs> Most of his letters to the other churches are like, man, you guys are doing so bad. But his letter to the Thessalonians is he's actually writing to them because they're actually doing so good. In 1 Thessalonians 4, there's only five chapters in 1 Thessalonians, but as he gets ready to conclude his letter to them, he says this, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact, you are living. So this is what you also learn about the gospel. The gospel never goes forward without instruction on how to obey and live as the light. I believe we're living in a time and in a world where if the gospel goes out, it's only this abstract love of God with no expectation that God expects us to then live as the light that we've just been called into. And I never want that to happen to us. I can't control what the world is doing at times, and we can't control what other churches are doing or how the gospel is being preached in other places. But here at the Dwelling Place Church, it's always going to be our desire that we share with you the message of the gospel in its entirety. 
And here, 2,000 years ago, you see here, as he's writing to the Thessalonians, he's telling them, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. And so the church, when you come to church, we have to hear how God instructs, how God, we have to hear the instruction of God on how to live. Not just to worship, but how to live. Not just to pray, but how to live. Why is that important? Because then it elevates your worship. It, it elevates and it protects your prayers. Imagine someone praying to God but having no idea the expectation on how to live for God. Then our prayers sound crazy. I've heard some crazy prayers. I'm not saying necessarily from you, but I've heard crazy prayers from Christians. Oh, my God. It's like, what in the world are they praying? God, get them. They're my enemies. Crush them in the name of Jesus. I reverse the curse back in the name. Like, what are you praying? <laughs> Jesus said, bless those that, that curse you. And, you send, and we send the curses back. That happens to a Christian who loves God but has not received any instruction on how to live for God. I know some of you have been, rumors are out. I don't like going to church on Sunday. It's too teachy. I am unapologetic. <laughs> I'm unapologetic at this point. I'm sorry. Feel like I'm in a Bible study. Amen. Praise the Lord. We're in Bible study and I love it. You're going to know why Thessalonians was written. You're going to know why, so that we don't do this too. Start pulling verses out and make them mean whatever they want to mean. No, please no. <laughs> so he continues in verse 1. Now we ask you and urge you and the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. I was telling my wife this. I said, love, you know what's so fascinating? The book of Thessalonians was not written because the Christians didn't have it together. It was written because they did have it together, and now he's instructing them to keep it going. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's really good. Why? Because some of us say, I already know I'm doing the right thing. This shows us when you're doing the wrong thing, like the church, the church at Corinth, you need to hear the word of God preached to you over and over again. But this also shows us when you're doing the right thing, you need to hear the same word of God preached to you over and over again. So even if we feel we're at a good place with God, we still need, we still need encouragement by, by, by the institution that God gave us, the beautiful church, its leaders, its pastors, and its teachers, the Holy Spirit himself, to tell us keep on doing the right thing and then remind us of the wrong thing so we don't slip up. And this is what he's telling them. Now let's just read that whole verse with that understanding. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 again. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Which now Paul is saying the instruction he did not make up. So this is where we also have to, this becomes the responsibility of all the pastors and the leaders and the church institution. We have to make sure, make sure that we're not making up what Jesus said, but we're turning to the words of Jesus, and then we're encouraging 
the church to lean into that. Verse 3, it is God's will that you be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Look at this. It is God's will that you are sanctified. The will of God is that we're sanctified. You ever pray, what is the will of God? Here, what is the calling of God for my life? What is the purpose of God for my life? What is the will of God for my life? Let's start here. The call of God is for you to be light, and the will of God is for us to be sanctified. We could make a lot of progress just starting there. Before knowing, should I go to this college, Lord Jesus, or that college? I'm not saying not to pray that, but so much, so much could happen for us if we knew that the will of God was our sanctification. It could get us going. Should I marry this man or that man? <laughs> this woman or that woman? Jesus, that's good. You better pray that. But so much could be happening already if we knew that we needed to be the light. So sanctification is God's will for us. Well, what is sanctification? Well, in order to understand sanctification, you first have to know what is righteousness. Okay. In Christ, when you and I come, because of what Jesus did on my behalf, on our behalf, we are declared righteous in the sight of God. Our righteousness does not come from us, but our righteousness comes from the work of Jesus. That then was, in the book of Romans, talks about that being put on us. So our sin was imputed onto him in exchange for his righteousness imputed onto us. And so now when God looks at us, then God sees the righteousness of God over us. We are declared righteous in the sight of God. Romans speaks about this in Romans chapter 3. What is sanctification? Okay, righteousness is a declaration, right? Or we're justified, so to say. There's justification, sanctification. I'm justified in the sight of God, declared righteous. Sanctified is the process of becoming righteous. Justification, God caused me righteous. Sanctification, now I'm becoming what God called me. And when we say, well, that's just too hard, I can never see myself changing. In the book of Romans, it's also talking about how God spoke to Abraham, who was unable, and Sarah, unable to have children. But God called those things that were not as though they were. And because, look, because God called them fertile, they became fertile. So when you look at yourself and say, God, I'm not righteous, God says, hold on, I called you righteous. And now that I called you righteous, now there's power to become righteous because God has the ability to call those things that be not as though they were. So regardless of right now how much you're struggling, your deliverance begins in your mind with you understanding that you've been declared righteous by God. Therefore, it is the power to become righteous in God. So the will of God is your sanctification. So I have to tell myself this. I can be better. I can do better. I can talk better. I can think better. And my passions on the inside of me can be turned around. How, how in the world you sing? That the external situations that God, that the enemy meant those for evil and he can turn them for good and we're okay to sing that, but we don't think that God can't take the passions and the inner lust and turn those for good either, 
also. Right? If God could take an external situation and turn it for good, why can't he take an inner evil lust and turn it for good too? A greedy spirit, God can turn that and turn you into a giver. Someone struggling with sexual immorality, God can turn you pure and give you a desire for commitment and passion and marriage. Absolutely he can, we, or we have to believe that he can. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. So God is inviting us into participation to believe that he can change us and our effort to be changed. Not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And in, that, and, and in this manner, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. And again, he's talking to people who are living as the light. So it's like, Pastor, stop talking. Why we got to talk about this? I think it's beneficial to us. Verse 7, and then we'll get out of Thessalonians. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. So he calls us to be light so that we can live as light. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject the human being, but God. So this is not... Paul's instruction. This is God's instruction to them. The very God, look, who gives you his Holy Spirit. So Paul knew. Paul understood what Jesus was saying when he told the disciples, I'm going to give you the spirit of truth, the comfort, and he's going to come on the inside of you. I know you're wrestling, but the Holy Spirit is going to come alongside you to help you. And as Jesus told that to his disciples, now Paul is telling that to the Thessalonians. The Holy Spirit is within you to help you. And look at the declaration. Now he writes the Ephesians written by the Apostle Paul. <laughs> this is what he tells them in verse chapter 5. He goes, for you once, for you were once darkness. Ephesians 5 verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Look, live as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. We got to find out. I have to find out what pleases God. And when I find out what pleases God, then I know what doesn't please God. So as a believer, not everything pleases God. As a, as a Christian, not everything's the go. Some of us might say, but that's not loving. That's not loving to tell one another that this is right or this is wrong. That's not loving. Because we also, too, we associate love to emotion. And so if I tell you something and it, and it hurts, if I tell you something that hurts your feelings, we live in a generation where if you tell me something that hurts my feelings, I automatically deem you as unloving. That's the world we live in. He's not loving. This hurt, he said this, it hurt my feelings. That is the world's definition of love. That is not God's definition of love. Then we all silly. We take our definition of love, and then we read that into the scripture when the Bible's talking about love. 
And so we're reading the word love, but we're defining it by the world's love. Thank God. Who would have imagined that God would have defined what love actually is? And when you realize what love actually is, biblical love, it's not connected to feeling. Biblical love, it's connected to truth. The best way for me to, the best way for me to like put this in an app, I remember growing up and, my, and saying, my mommy told me she loved me, but every time she told me something, she hurt my feelings. She told me I can't do this, I can't do that, I can't, you know, I can't go here, I can't go there. I'm like, that's not, as a child, naive and ignorant, I'm, a, I'm, I'm defining love by how her word makes me feel. All it took was for me to become an adult. And then realize that all her words that didn't make me feel right were actually her love, her pure, true love towards me. Well, the same way with God. When God talks to us, it doesn't always feel. And we don't understand why God says not to or leads us in a direction that we don't want to go. God, I want to do this, but I feel you leading me that. That doesn't feel right. Or we don't like when God says this is wrong and this is right. Oh, that doesn't feel right. But Love is not about what we feel. Love is about truth. We're almost done. I think we're almost done. Yeah, we got to be done. We're almost done. Hang on. We're almost there. Now, GoPro John, right, the gospel, has his gospel account, but also, too, in the New Testament, we see three epistles that in our Bibles are called the epistles of John. So there's a gospel that talks about the life of Jesus, but then we get these epistles. And so most scholarship would believe, because it's written very similar to the gospel, that the gospel of John is, is the same. The person who wrote John, the beloved disciple who wrote the gospel of John, is also the person who wrote 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And you have those in your Bibles. This would also be the John that wrote Revelation then in turn. But in 1 John chapter 4, he's going to start to talk about love and truth. And he's going to start to define that for us. And this was very helpful for those people because these people, John's epistle, some of scholarship believes that it was also written to uh, churches out in Ephesus. There were people that were turning away from the truth. Because, again, just the darkness of the world luring them in. And so John's epistle is, is trying to bring them into the light, just as Paul's epistles to the churches were trying to bring them to the light, or like Paul's epistle to the Thessalonians was to keep them in the light that they're in. And so it reads this in verse 4 of chapter 4 of 1 John. He says, You dear children are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. He's telling them, like, they're overcoming persecution. They're also overcoming uh, teachings that are luring those that have come to trust in Jesus back out. In this epistle, he says there were, they, they were people of us, but then they got carried away. They, they were not with us from the beginning in so many ways. But he's saying, you have overcome them. You're still here. This is good. He says, greater is the one that's in you. See the language again? Where's the Holy Spirit? Where's the spirit of truth? Where's God? Not on the outside. All of the apostles, Paul included, know 
where the Holy Spirit resides and where's God. He's always on the inside of us. He says, greater is the one that is in you than the one that is in the world. He goes, they are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize, look, again, the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. This is what the church has to wrestle with. And this is not new. You think we're, we're, we're wrestling against falsehood and that just started in our century? From the first century, the very first century of the Christian believers, these small home churches, they were pushing back and fighting darkness trying to get back into the church. And this was, it was a twofold fight. They had to be worried about Christians who were in the light going out into the darkness, but they also had to worry about darkness stepping into their community, their church families. And so this letter is really having, <laughs> be ready. Darkness is trying to pull you out. You overcame, praise God, but watch out because that darkness is going to try to seep in. And they were wrestling against false teachers too. Paul will warn the Galatians church. He said, if I preach a different gospel than the one I originally preached, curse be me. And then he says, and if an angel, he goes, I don't care if some angelic being comes out of a 13th dimension and preaches another gospel than the one you originally heard, curse be that angel then. And then in Corinthians, in his second letter, Paul tells the Corinthian church, if someone comes preaching another Jesus to you, just because it has Jesus' name, don't make it Jesus. If there, he says, if another Jesus is preached to you, in today's world, when we're here, when you're listening to sermons, you better, which Jesus is this? He says, if another spirit, other than the spirit that you received, oh, you better believe. There's, so there's Jesus, and then there's this false Jesus. There's the Holy Spirit, and there's the phony spirit. And so we got to be able to, you got to navigate. <laughs> so it's moving, but what's moving? And if there was sorcerers and witch workers and magic workers back then, you better believe they didn't go anywhere 2,000 years later. They know how to move stuff too. And a lot of us just see stuff moving and be like, oh, there goes Jesus, there goes the Holy Spirit. Hold up. The Gospel of John begins with, you better test every spirit. He said, you better make sure that this is from... <laughs> so we got to know the spirit of truth from the spirit of phony. Holy Ghost from phony ghost. Verse 7 says, dear friends... He said it, not me. <laughs> dear friends... Let us, look at this, love one another, for love comes from where? Okay. Let us love one another because love comes from where? Love doesn't come from my definition of love. Love doesn't come from how I think love should be. He says love comes from God. So here's the thing about light. Truth comes from light that comes from God. So it's God's truth. Love comes from God, so it has to be God's love. 
So I don't make up the truth that comes from God, nor do I make up the love that comes from God. Both are coming from God, and that makes the light to the world. Now look at this. Dear friends, let us love one another. Verse 7, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and, God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. Because now look at this. God is love. So God doesn't just have an emotional feeling of love. <laughs> right? There are not things done to God that make him feel loved. Like, depending what you say and how you say it makes me feel loved. But this is saying love comes from God, but more than love coming from God, God is love. So I can't make God feel loved. His character, who he it, he is love. And so for me to be in God is then for me to be in that love. But that love also comes in truth. That's a good, like, coffee talk right there. God being love. It doesn't mean he has the sentiment of love, the emotion of love, but he is love. And so therefore, when we love people, we have to love people how God loves people. That became our vision. We exist to love people how God loves people. So the question is, how does God love people? That would be a series in itself. But we're going to see it's in truth. It's in truth. We shall know the truth, and the truth shall set us free. Eight. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Nine. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his, only, he sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him, living as the light through him. I'm going to close with these verses in 1 Corinthians now. Chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians is very well known. Most of you have probably heard it at a wedding. Maybe during someone's vows or maybe the minister, they'll have him read. Um, where it starts to talk about love. And this is beautiful. Because this chapter actually gives us a definition of love. It doesn't leave it up to us to define love. It, it's going to define it. The word of God is going to define love for us. And so the same way light is not abstract, love cannot be abstract also. We can't walk up and say, ah, oh, I think this is what light is to me. God has defined light through Jesus. But also, too, it's not up to me to define what love is. We can't walk up to that picture and say, ah, oh, this looks like love to me. And then you come alongside me and say, yeah, that's, I have a different picture of love. God has also defined to us what love is. And while it's great to be read at weddings, it's also important to be read together as a congregation. As us who are, call ourselves Christians, that we're living in the light, or that we're called to be in the light. And I invite to read this for you to follow along with me. Now, this is Paul writing to that crazy church. This is not the Thessalonians. <laughs> the church of Corinth, they were a hot mess. They were spiritually gifted, absolutely. Like, they were full of the spirit. They had prophecy. It was just all out of order. And he was telling them, you got to get that. 
They spoke in tongues, but it was a hot mess. He's like, yeah, you need interpreters, people. He's like, one at a time so we can all be edified. So they, they were spiritually gifted, but they were just a wreck in their order, and they were also a wreck in their character. And so by the time we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, what Paul is trying to do is he's just talked to them in chapter 12 about all the gifts coming from the one in the same spirit. It doesn't matter what spiritual gift we have, it all comes from God. And because, look, because God's in us, then what comes with him? The gifts. This is how we're spiritually gifted. Because where's God? Not on the outside. He's on the inside. And so then the gifts are, manifest, are manifested from where God is living. So if many of us feel like, man, I'm not, you know, I, these gifts are not flowing out of me, or, or, or these gifts haven't come upon me, the real question is, where is God in us, and are we suppressing him within us because look at this, if you suppress the Holy Spirit that's within you, then gifts don't flow from you. And the evidence of that is our lack of fruit. Because where did the fruit come from also? From the Spirit. Why does Paul write about the fruits of the Spirit? Because Jesus said in John 15, I am the vine, ye the branches. He that remains in me will bear much fruit. So then the question is, I've called upon God, but am I allowing God to transform me so that I'm bearing fruit? Am I allowing God to have total dominion and rule in my life as King Jesus, Messiah, the Christ, the Christo, so that then what? His gifts are manifesting out of me. But even when I have all these gifts, Paul's going to say there's a way to do this in love, and that love is going to be defined by God's instruction. He says, if we speak in tongues of men or of angels, he's always throwing in angels. <laughs> he said, I don't care whether we think, speak in tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love. I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. It's amazing how we could do all of that stuff and still not have love. And here come some definitions. Love is patient. Love is patient. Where does love come from? It comes from God. But wait a minute. God is love. So when I'm not patient, I'm not reflecting God. I'm suppressing some kind of light that is supposed to be in me. That means I'm leaning into my own darkness. Patience is also a fruit of the Spirit, so that means I'm also suppressing the Spirit. When we, when we have all these issues, it's because we're suppressing that which is within us. And we're leaning into... Our old man, that's why we read Colossians, where it's like, crucify this, crucify that, put to death this, put to death that. God needs your partnership in this, people. This is not spiritual, godly possession, where God just, the Spirit of God just takes hold of you and starts moving you all around the church and in the community, and then you wake up from this spiritual trance and you have no idea what God did with you, be like, I think God used me. If you are possessed by the Holy Spirit, I would question if that's the Holy Spirit or y'all already know. (laughs) 
So love is patient because God is patient. The whole biblical story of the Old Testament is the patience of God and his covenant promise of love and patience for humanity. That's the character of God himself. Love is kind. Huh. No one's been ever more merciful and kind than God to creation. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Not even God is proud. Not even God is boasting. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Um, help me. Help us. Look, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with what? With the truth. It's, so you, you're also not able to separate truth from love. If you disconnect the truth from the love, then is it actually love? Not in God's definition. I don't even know where I'm at. Okay, seven. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always, always perseveres. Verse eight, love never fails. Where there are prophecies, they will cease, they'll come to a stop. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it'll pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. What Paul is saying here, not to turn that into a Bible study, could, could be, but what he's saying is that all of those things have its place in a certain time. And that's the time that we're in, where prophecy is needed, where tongues, you could say, are needed, where certain knowledge is needed right now, but there's going to come a point where we don't need any of that. Why? Let's just read. Verse 11. He goes on to say, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. That's a sermon. I'm going to preach that sermon, and it's going to be called, That's Not Cute Anymore. <laughs> that would be good, right? That's Not Cute Anymore? My mom, I remember a story where she served me SpaghettiOs. I love SpaghettiOs. Better than Chef Bardi, SpaghettiOs. She served me, and I took it, and I dumped it on my head. And she laughed, hey, <laughs> hey, then, then she served me again, and I dumped it on my head again. That's not cute anymore. What? <laughs> cute the first time. Certain things are cute when we're 13. But now I'm 33. It ain't cute anymore. It was cute when you were 17. You 57. It's not cute anymore. It was eight. We all babied you. But when you grow up, you're 18. We can't baby you. And so in Christ, certain things are not cute anymore. He said, when I was a child, yep, act like one. Now I'm a man. I got to put my childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in the mirror. Then we shall see, look at this, face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Look at verse 13. And now these three remain. There's faith, there's hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Why? Why does 
Why, why will prophecy, prophecy cease? Why will knowledge that we're trying to acquire come to an end? Why, yes, there's faith, uh, hope, and love, but why love is the greatest? Because there's going to come a time when we step into the new creation and the old heaven and the old earth is going to pass away. And right now when I look into a mirror, like James was talking about a mirror, I'm trying to see who I am so God can reveal to me. And I need the knowledge to know who I am. And I need revelation to know who I am. But the day is going to come when this world will pass away. And the new heaven is going to come and invade earth. And Jesus, the Bible says that even the sun is going to go away because Jesus will be the light. He will be the full illumination. And in that illumination, I don't need hope because I have reality. And that revelation, I don't need someone to prophesy of what's to come because all things have come together in Christ. All of it has been unified in Christ Jesus. The only thing that we will need in that time is love, the character of God. I'll be the image of God. You'll be the image of God. All knowledge will be fully known in Christ. All of our hopes will have become a reality in Christ. And so why, this is why in the end, this is why love is the greatest. What a beautiful text. So what is this? If we're called to be the light, this is a challenge to live as the light. It's a challenge to you. It's a challenge to me. If you're married, you're called to, be, to live as the light. If you're single, you're called to be a light. If you've already gone through life and you've gone through hardships and you had victories and failures and now you have the wisdom of life behind you, you're still called to be the light. If you're a teenager, you're called to be a, the light. If you're single, you're called to be the light. It doesn't matter where we're at. We're all called to be the light. And so this is why we have to lean into God. This is why we have to hear messages like this because the darkness is still out there. And when we step out of the church family, we can't be, we're not out of the world. There's darkness wherever we go. Wherever there's unbelief, there's darkness. But this is why Jesus said, yeah, the world is dark, but you are the light of the world. So when I step into the dark atmosphere of my workplace, I am the light there. When I get to the family gathering and they don't believe, I am the light there. When I'm in my community and there's devastation around and trauma, we have to be the light there. We, the Dwelling Place Church, also have to be the light in our community. That's why we're doing the things that we're doing. Not religiously, because we don't want to feed the poor and then still have no love. We want to do it from love. Not out of just pure duty, but from love. So today, if you don't know, never trusted in the light, that light is Jesus. And I pray that in all of this Bible study, you were able to still hear the gospel message of grace. That King Jesus has come. He died for your sin, but he rose. And he promises to give us the Holy Spirit for those that believe by faith. So today, he's available to you. I invite you to stand to your feet. And the worship team is going to come up here, and they're just going to worship. We sang this song just before going into the word of God, and I pray that as they worship, that right now, wherever you are at, if you've been in darkness and you want to come into the light, receive salvation through Christ, that as they worship, that they just open up your heart and you accept Christ. How do you do that? By faith. More than it being by a prayer, 
is by a confession of faith. And you're saying, Jesus, I receive you as king. Not just Messiah over the Jewish people, but king of the world. I receive you as king of my life. I repent of my sin. I turn to you. The Bible says he's just and faithful to forgive us. And the Bible tells us that we're born again. If you're a Christian already, and you already believe, but you realize that more darkness has been prevailing in your mind, maybe in your heart or your feelings, maybe even manifested in our actions, today's a day for us to repent too and come to that same Jesus, not a different one. The person who's in darkness coming in needs a Jesus. And those that are in Christ that slip up, mess up, need the same Jesus. It's always the same Jesus. And we get to taste the beautiful experience of his grace and mercy as we all repent and come to him. So my prayer is as they worship, that we would just turn and lean into God's word in this atmosphere of worship. Amen? God bless you. Thank you.